so there's times when it can just be coming in. I can really just turn to, oh, torpor, sloth, dullness. By doing that, the wise attention has actually moved into the awareness. And moment after moment of really turning to the awareness within which one is aware of, ah, this is just too hard right now. Or my eyes are just too sleepy, or my body's just too heavy, or this is useless. There's too much sloth and torpor. I can't keep paying attention. Just turn to the awareness and keep noticing it. I'm not saying it magically disappears, but it really shifts from unwise to wise attention. It stops feeding it and begins to starve it. With restlessness and worry, the Buddha says you can actually pay attention. Let me find it. To the stillness of awareness. In other words, it doesn't mean all the phenomena stop coming and going. It doesn't mean you're sitting there so worried about whatever obsessive thought is there and think, oh, let me just notice stillness of awareness and the whole thing falls away. But stillness of awareness is actually accessible. Stillness of awareness means the mind's jumping all around. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And awareness notices it all. It's similar to the sloth and torpor one. Just withdraw the energy from getting caught in the stories and the obsessive thoughts. Turn it back to the moment of knowing itself. Oh, knowing obsessive thought. Knowing obsessive thought. That awareness isn't jumping around. It's not going anywhere. It's just in that moment. Everything's happening in the stillness of awareness. Just play with it. Just play with us. And of course, with the uncertainty, it's like, you know, quit paying attention to all those thoughts. He says, at times, knowing, really look clearly and see what's what, instead of just speculating about things, you know? Come out of the speculation and just bring your bare attention to know what's arising in this moment. It's really sustained attention, rather than thinking you're going to think your way out of this one, which just keeps feeding the doubt. Oh, gosh. So uh, we're never going to get through this, guys. Um, Those are some of the examples I wanted to give under the first, which is how why seeing actually starves these tendencies, you know, and some very specific examples of that. And this leads into the second, which is how the asavas or these habits of mind are abandoned by what he calls restraining. In other words, restraint at the sense doors. Now, we think of restraining sometimes, of course, restraint, you know, you're putting in a straitjacket. That's like our violent image of restraining or holding somebody back. In a way, it could be that. But restraining is really what Ajahn Buddha Dasa calls bringing satipanya, mindfulness wisdom in at the moment of sense door contact. So in the moment of seeing, if we're right present with mindfulness wisdom, we know seeing. We know, oh, that's beautiful. It's pleasant. It doesn't expand. It doesn't turn into craving 
or becoming or some whole papancha about what it means in the future. It just becomes, oh yeah, seeing, pleasant. Mindfulness wisdom at the point of sense contact. That's really what restraint at the sense doors means. Without that restraint, as you know, there's a moment you might notice that you're seeing something pleasant, but not quite with the wisdom factor, not quite with strong enough mindfulness. And then it goes off, like I said, with a hindrance to the gratification of the pleasant, the sense of me, and to thoughts about it and what it means. And those thoughts lead to action. And this is what we call papancha, right? Proliferation. Stories of the past, stories of the future, actions it can lead to. All because just in that moment of sense contact, there wasn't restraint. Now, sometimes we can think of restraint as, you know, being so afraid that the desire or the ill will or the sense of self is going to proliferate that we're almost afraid to look around. I have a friend who, uh, some years ago, on retreat at the, at the retreat center, was working with restraint in this way, which was that he walked around blindfold all day for several days, up, and he knew the place, you know, up and down the stairs, and that, that way, you know, he was restraining sense contact at the eye door, which is true, and we can go a little far that way, because, of course, there's still the other five senses, right? Sense contact at the ear door and the touching sensation and taste and smell and the mind, which we can't really just put a blindfold on that. But wise attention means both seeing how wise attention or restraint at the sense door, just the whole proliferation falls away, and seeing how far down the road we go when there is unwise attention, when we get caught up in lack of restraint. So I'll give you a simple example from my practice. I was practicing uh, one time a month or so in this really beautiful retreat center in South Africa up in uh, KwaZulu-Natal. And it's really lovely, more lovely than here as far as the environment, you know. And one day I came out and there's very beautifully landscaped, and there's kind of a, an oval drive, and it came out right around dawn, and all around the whole drive were huge iris bushes. And on this particular dawn, they'd all bloomed at once. You know, they hadn't bloomed. And I still remember it. This is like almost 10 years ago. So beautiful and subtle. It was this white with little tiny violet color in the middle, and I was just overwhelmed with the beauty. I did not have wise attention at the sense door. This is so beautiful. For a moment, it was just appreciating beauty. Then it was, ah, oh, so pleasant. I didn't say so pleasant. If I did, that would have been wise attention. How can I hold on to this, basically? Oh, my mother would love to see this. She's such a gardener. If only I could take photos. Of course, I didn't have a camera, but that didn't stop me. I went back and for photos, my friend Gavin, he's over there. He's on retreat, but never mind. I bet he has a camera, you know? So I'm running around the place, looking for my friend who is staying in another part, trying to borrow a camera, all really in service of continuing the sense of pleasant in that moment. Total non-restraint at the sense door. 
I mean, we're not talking evil or something. We're talking what was feeding in that moment craving. This is what we look at. What's increasing in the mind and what's decreasing? What was increasing craving? You know, I finally take the pictures, I bring them home, I show them to my mother. Oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, (laughs) nothing to do. (laughs) It doesn't translate. It's just, ooh, how can I hold on to this? It's so beautiful. Nothing wrong with beauty, but it's that attachment, you know? So keeping it simple here. Shankara, who was an Advaita master in, in India centuries ago, he points out that we nourish craving. Craving is intensified when we let our thoughts dwell on sense objects and seek temporary satisfaction in those sense objects. That is what increases the habit of craving in our hearts, in our minds. Practicing with restraint, satipanya, at all the sense doors really just cuts that tendency. It's starving the tendency for craving or for aversion if you focus in the same way on all the unpleasant things. Some of us are cursed with that particular. At least you don't kid yourself that you're enjoying it and that it's nice. You know it's suffering. This one, you may not quite notice the suffering aspect, but really pay attention and notice. Even when you talk and tell yourself, oh, this is really good, this is really wholesome, it's a little papancha, a little proliferation, but I'm noticing it, and it's really for the good of all beings, or at least it's for my own well-being right now. I need a little beauty. It's so dreary. There's so much dukkha. The skillful means isn't about what it looks like. It's about what's being fed in your heart, in your mind. Sometimes, if you're in a real dukkha, lots of suffering space, you go and sit outside, look at the beauty, and ah, it just brings more stillness of awareness, more peace. That's not feeding. That's not lack of restraint. That's skillful means. But if you watch, and what's being fed is more, more, more. Less peaceful, less peaceful. I need this object. I don't want that object. Then it's unwise attention and really notice. We can see the moment-to-moment effect. It's really very useful. You can see how it works. There's a quotation from, if I could, oh, from Sokni Rinpoche that I think describes this very well. He's saying, at the present moment in our unawakened, not very mindful state. At the present moment, our mind faces away from itself. Mind, or you could say attention, or mana, as in mana sikara. The mind bends towards whatever we experience. Sight, sound, smell, taste, texture. The mind leans towards it. The attention then also is caught up by thoughts about the past, about the future, and about the present in association with that object, right? That's the habit of our mind. Yet, restraint of the senses doesn't mean that we then get afraid to have sense contact. Like my friend, you know, God, if I see anything, I'll get lost in craving, so better to be blind, you know? Better to be deaf, better to be dead, you know? But it means to see that there can be exquisite presence 
It's not the sense contact, it's the clinging, Sokni again. Yet we are not dragged into hell just by experiencing something. Neither are we elevated to a heavenly state by experiencing something. As Tilopa said to Naropa, son, you are not bound by perceiving, but by clinging. So cut your clinging, Naropa. Satipanya, wise attention at the sense door, is really what we mean by restraint of the senses. See the contact, and by wise attention, cut the clinging, or the aversion, or the endless proliferation. And again, as Shankara says, when we cease dwelling upon sense objects, peace will arise in your heart. We call this liberation while living. Liberation while living, peace will arise in your heart. Even if for a moment, then restraint becomes a beautiful, supportive, happy state. The third way that the Buddha spoke in this sutta about abandoning all these tendencies, really letting them wither. And this is something that's useful not only in retreat, but very all of these are useful in life, but this one very much in our daily life, is called asavas that can be abandoned by using, by paying attention to our relationship to how we use things, to how we use the requisites of our life. So he, of course, is talking to monks. And here's an example. Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, paying careful attention, uses a robe only for protection from the cold or from heat, for protection from insects, burning, for the purpose of concealing what disturbs conscience. In other words, you're not using it for beautification. You're not dressing for amusement. You know, you're not using it what does the way you use your clothes, and he goes on to talk about how we use alms food, how we use resting place, how we use medicines. And those are the four things that a bhikkhu can have. We can, of course, have many more things. But it's really, I have found this so useful and very widespread on retreat, but also in life, to pay attention to the way I use clothes, requirements, you know, where I live, what keeps me warm, things that I think I need, all the things that really expands in a lay life. How we use food, how we relate to food. In other words, do we use these things simply for protection, to keep us comfortable, that's okay, to be healthy, to not be suffering? Or do we get caught in using clothes, food, requisites, supplies, home, for further pleasure? Does the way we relate to our clothes, for example, increase wanting in our mind? Does it increase a sense of becoming of who we are? Does it increase our tendency to perceive inaccurately? So I'll use some simple retreat examples, but really look in your life. It's a a fascinating thing. Um, 
food. And this isn't, remember, all this is looking carefully. This isn't some judgment. Oh, I should only eat X amount of food, and if I eat more, then I'm using it for pleasure. You know, I'm using it to increase craving. It could be different at every meal, you know, is to look and see. I know I saw for myself at some point, um, I think it was on a retreat where I wasn't on eight precepts, which means not eating, but I, it was just too much trouble to come to tea. It was, I think, a three-month course, and it's like a you know, zoo in the dining room over there when there's 100 people at mealtime, and it was too much trouble. But I would kind of start to worry, what if, right? And this is really where I see this, looking at how I'm using food or clothes or blankets with this what-if mind. What if? I get hungry later. So maybe I better save some extra from lunch. Maybe I better take two or three pieces of fruit at breakfast. Maybe before I go to the retreat, I have to go buy a bunch of jars of almond butter, you know, to have in my room. All of this. And at some point, as I just started to notice how much extra trouble and dukkha and desire saving that food meant. Take the banana, but where can you save it? Here, thank God, we don't have what they have over at IMS, which is this back dining room with shelves. Most of you have sat there where you come in in the second month of a three-month retreat. It's a crack up if if you're teaching or on staff. These shelves are packed packed with food and old rotting oranges and people with 17,000 jars of vitamins and, you know, all these kinds of little saved rice with mold growing on it. And, you know, people are back there cooking. And I'm not talking about people with health needs. I'm talking about all of us, you know. Here you don't have that. God knows what's going on in your rooms, and I don't want to know. But taking the banana back to the room and it's up there and then you're really hungry later and oh but where can I eat it it's nine at night I have to go all the way back to my room I shouldn't eat in the room I have to go all the way back down here and eat but then they'll see me eating and what will they think they'll think I went in the kitchen and stole it and I don't want them thinking that or maybe they're hungry and I'll have to share it with them otherwise I'll feel selfish or whatever it's like oh my god who needs this Who needs it? So I'm a little hungry later. It's so much easier. That serves to starve desire, ill will, self, sense of self. It just doesn't matter, you know? How are you using it? So it's not the outer appearance. What's increasing? Desire and becoming. I'm going to become a hungry person. Oh my gosh, I'm becoming a very... You could not eat. You could eat one tiny little bit of food. And what that's serving in your mind is, I hope they notice how really abstemious I am. I hope they're noticing what a really... That's a word. I hope they're noticing what a really ace yogi I am. Well, then I'd say pile your plate with food and eat like a pig because what you're feeding with being so delicate is a sense of becoming very, very strongly, you know? Break it. When you take, you know, there's only two blankets apiece and you take three because I might get cold later. You know, I see myself doing that all the time. And how we don't really like it when our comfort level or what we think we need is being threatened. I was listening to the tape of a talk by Ajahn Sumedho at Spirit Rock 
Um, and he was talking about restraint and renunciation. And he's funny. So I was just listening to this tape, and the audience was really laughing pretty solidly at all the stuff he was saying. And he was saying it in a humorous way. Now, at his retreats, everyone on the retreat is expected to be on eight precepts. That's just part of the retreat. So partway into this talk, he started talking about, well, here everyone's on eight precepts, but I noticed there's a, a refrigerator, especially for yogis with special needs. He said, I noticed how really very full that refrigerator is. And supposedly here, we're all on eight precepts. That means not taking anything extra. So, and he's laughing, you know, he's saying this in a light way. I had the idea we should just empty out that fridge and give it all to the homeless. There was not one chuckle in that crowd. <laughs> it was the most dead kind of silence after he said that. It was, to me, really funny. No! <laughs> so, looking at, not, not with a sense of right or wrong, but how are we using things? Again, another example, because there's no way I'm getting through the other four tonight anyway. I noticed on one retreat in relationship to clothes. This just popped in my mind tonight when I was writing it. See, very, it can be really be very subtle that we see. Some retreat I was on in Australia with Sayadaw, Upandita, and I had this one dress. That, it wasn't even a nice dress, but something about the colors I really liked. And it just flashed in my mind tonight as I was writing this. I remembered one day I had that dress on, and in the room I was in had a big mirror. And just as I was walking, I didn't particularly look in it, but as I was walking past it, I caught a glimpse of myself of that dress in the mirror. And there was immediate, oh, that's such pretty colors. And it went into this whole uh, craving. And I saw how, in a relatively subtle, it wasn't I thought I looked so beautiful or something, or that anyone else was noticing me, because nobody was. But just in my own mind, by liking and wearing that particular dress, and every time I saw it, a craving would come up in my mind. It doesn't mean never wear a nice dress, but if the mindfulness wasn't quite acute enough to notice it, then I could suddenly wake up in a fantasy of some really pleasant craving fantasy that actually got triggered by simply noticing the sight of that dress, liking it, going into, wow, this is really pretty, and boom, craving really strengthened, and off into some fantasy that has nothing whatsoever to do with the dress, or clothes, or anything. You wouldn't even notice how it got started. This is the subtlety of these habits of mind, and the wonderfulness of having this time and this space to explore it. Not with judgment at all, but like, wow, that's really interesting. Perfume's another one. Aside from all the aversion that people get going on retreat, that's just feeding aversion. But again, I like perfume. I like the smell of perfume. On me or on somebody else, I just like the smell. I love pleasant smells. And I can notice when I smell perfume, I really can see, like in the world of fashion, the function of it. Because what it does is elicit craving, elicit clinging, whether that moves into sexuality or not, but just the bare clinging. You know, that's the function of the whole fashion world. You know? And I know personally from being a nun, you can bring that same thing into being in robes. 
I mean, the whole purpose of robes is it cuts that, and it's wonderful. When I just had three robes, and it was just wear the clean one, soak the dirty one, and the other one's drying out. That was great. It was so freeing. But I've seen nuns and monks who can really get into, I've known monks, nobody present, who (laughs) have really gotten into the colors of their robe. This is in Thailand, or too much on the neon orange color, which is kind of the schlock city monk color. And I really want to have that dull forest monk color and being really upset when the robes they were given or had was way too much on the neon side and not enough on the worn out, I'm a really, you know, renunciate forest bhikkhu side. I don't see any difference than that between wearing perfume and a flower dress, you know. It's just the same qualities of mind. Granted, living a simpler lifestyle makes it easier because there's less things to get lost in, less things to have to relate to. But you can see how really valuable this is in our life as well. How am I relating to food? Is it increasing desire and clinging and becoming? Is it bringing me freedom? Just peace in this moment in the mind. How do I relate to clothes? How do I relate to where I live? How do I relate to medicine? Never mind entertainment and all the rest. So you see how really, really helpful this is. Well, that's it for tonight. We only got through, I thought we'd get all the way through six, and then I'd just talk about the seven factors of enlightenment, which is the seventh one next week. But I don't think we're going to get there. So I'll just say what the next ones are that we'll talk about next week. And those are the hindrances that are abandoned by patience or by enduring. And then again, because the Buddha doesn't say just endure everything, those that are abandoned by avoiding, avoiding what is harmful potentially or unskillful. The next one is those that are abandoned by removing. And this is really how to really not tolerate, which is very different from patience, persistent, unskillful thoughts. And the seventh one is through feeding the seven factors of enlightenment, which is also in itself a very, very helpful balancing and development tool for the meditation practice. So I just want to end with telling you how the Buddha ends this sutta. After he's gone through it all, and he said, you know, once one has abandoned the tanks that can be removed by these seven ways, then he is called, or she is called, a bhikkhu who dwells restrained with the restraint of all the asavas, one who has severed craving, who has flung off the fetters, and has made an end of suffering with the complete understanding and removal of conceit. Conceit is the comparing and the subtle sense of self. So we're talking about many different ways of working with tendencies that are sometimes gross, sometimes extremely subtle. But this is not like an idle or intellectual exercise. 
as he says over and over, this leads to complete freedom of heart and mind in this very life. And as he says, if it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so. So may we all come to complete restraint of the asavas in this very life. Or as they say in Burma, may you attain nibbana in the shortest possible time. People just say that to you casually when they pass you in a monastery. Isn't that nice? Oh, may you attain nibbana in the shortest possible time. (laughs) And may our practice, may our listening to and speaking the Dhamma, may our sincere efforts in this day and in these last days May the beneficial energy of this be joined with the beneficial energies of all the three times, past, present, and future, of all beings. And may all these merits, this beneficial energy, be shared with all beings everywhere, in all realms, in all states of existence. May all beings be freed from suffering. May all beings be freed from confusion. May our practice be the cause for the liberation of all beings. Sikara, it's turning into the endless topic. Um, I have to tell you, I'm getting so uh, really enjoying researching it, because it starts by this sutta that I told you about last week that I want to go through tonight seven different ways of applying appropriate attention in our life, in our practice, and by doing so to completely eventually, completely uproot, wither away, even the subtle tendencies, the subtle habits of our mind toward greed, towards wanting to become, towards delusion. So this is a very, um, like a manual of skillful means that the Buddha is giving us here in the sutta. What I get excited about is it's not just limited to this one sutta as I start reading it and then going to other suttas, other discourses, other things, the Bo- just sticking to stuff that the Buddha said in the discourses. There's so much relevant, really practical material, so much, <laughs> that I'm indulging myself a little bit by bringing in more quotations from suttas than I normally would since I would telescope this whole talk into one. So I hope you can take it. It is the Buddha's words. So just to remind you very briefly that this first sutta we're talking about, Majima Nikaya number two, which is called All the Asavas, all the asavas translated as taints, I don't like that, but <clears throat> we could say the deeply underlying habit of the mind 
to respond or erupt into uh, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, really, personality view, you know, I'm becoming this or that, and basic ignorance, misunderstanding what's what. These subtle underlying tendencies is what the Buddha is saying wise attention or appropriate attention is the tool that can really help us to, not to violently remove, but it's as if a seed in our sort of stream of consciousness doesn't get watered, doesn't get watered, doesn't get watered till finally it so withers that even given the perfect conditions for greed to arise, it doesn't. You know? So that's a possibility. As the Buddha said, if it was not possible, I would not tell you to do so. And so that I talked about last week, and we began uh, in talking about the sutta, where he talks about seven specific ways, seven specific areas of working with this. The first one being um, asavas or habits, subtle habits abandoned by seeing. And he says, bhikkhus, I say that there is an exhaustion of asavas. I'm going to use that word asavas because taints just sounds so Victorian. There is an exhaustion of asavas in one who knows and sees, not in one who does not know and see. Who knows and sees what? Wise attention and unwise attention. In other words, we know and understand both wise or appropriate attention and unwise or inappropriate attention understanding what both of these can lead to is a huge tool in our practice. So in One's Abandoned by Seeing, as I began last week, um, seeing really means how we pay attention. The Buddha defines wise or appropriate attention Yoni Somanasikara, as basically knowing what it's appropriate to pay attention to. In other words, in paying attention to this, it leads to a decrease in greed, a decrease in hatred in wanting to become, a decrease in delusion. Unwise attention leads to an increase in these things. And how do we discover or how do we know whether these things are increasing or decreasing in ourselves? Simply by mindfulness, right? Not from somebody else telling us. It's often not even by our actions. We can, you know, control our actions through sila and that's essential. But our mind, as you may know, you may have once or twice had the experience of looking good, so to speak, and the mind is just riddled with whatever your particular favorites are. So the Buddha is saying, it's still though, it's not, what, it's not that only good things are worth attention, only bad things are not worth attention. 
It's not in the thing at all. It's in how we pay attention, the quality of attention. This is what makes it wise or unwise, appropriate or inappropriate. <clears throat> so remember, just in closing last week, I was talking about the way we pay attention, which is, of course, the first aspect of this first way of abandoning the asavas by seeing, which is, of course, our basic mindfulness. I don't need to go through that all again, right? You all really have it down, basic mindfulness. In other words, full and total attention to just what is in this moment without adding anything extra. Remember, somebody asked me to repeat this, so I will. One way of paying attention in that way from the Buddha, dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling to the present, then you go from place to place in peace. Just in one moment, that's mindfulness. That totality of attention that's not dragging the whole past after us, it's not projecting into the future, and it's not analyzing or clinging or explaining the present. It's not saying, yes, this is happening, therefore, blah, blah, blah about me. Just pure presence. And um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tanjef, had a lovely way, he's pointing to something the Buddha said, a lovely way, I thought, of expressing this. Noticing just what is present and what is absent in the mind, right? The mind at the moment is filled with ill will. At the moment, there is no metta. That's just an example. That would be appropriate attention, seeing what's what. And as Tan Jeff points out, that is a beginning to enter into emptiness. He's using a phrase from the Buddha in a particular sutta where the Buddha is talking about from very gross ways of entering into emptiness to, of course, the ultimate sublime freedom of mind. And by emptiness, he simply means the perception that knows this is present, but this moment is empty of that, right? Ill will is present, the moment is empty of metta, for example. Just that basic, that simple, you know? Um, The sutta actually starts by saying if the monk leaves the city and goes into the forest, then he realizes his perception is basically empty of city empty of people, but it's not empty of trees and forests. That basic. So when we're simply attending with this quality of non-judging, full attention, your whole being, but not one bit extra, that's this entering into emptiness, knowing this is here just this much, nothing extra. It's, again, this is from Tan Jeff pointing out that this is uh, another way of saying the paragraph that comes in the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness Suttas right at the end of each section, where he's talking about, where he talks about mindfulness of body or feeling or mind or mental qualities, where this is Tan Jeff's translation. It says at the end of each section, after the, the 
person has gone through all the different aspects of mindfulness on that foundation. Or there is mindfulness just to the extent that there is body, or there is feeling, or there is chitta, consciousness, or there are dhammas, mental quality. Mindfulness, just there is body, is maintained simply to the extent of knowing and seeing this. And thus he rests independent, not sustained by, not clinging to anything in this world. Just one moment of pure seeing is entering into that emptiness for a moment. This is really, you know, maybe the most subtle, but also very accessible to us, perfection of appropriate attention. And in that moment, not only gross or uh, vivid manifestations of the suffering habits of mind aren't being acted out, but even these subtle tendencies are not being fed. So you all know that. That's kind of the, you know, the peak, the, the height of our practice, that which we aspire to every waking moment of the day, right? But the Buddha being the practical being, it appears that he was, doesn't just say that and then walk away and say, okay, it's up to you. He goes on, and even just in this one sutta, even in this first section of this one sutta, giving lots of different ways to work at it. All based in wise attention. So I want to go into some other ways, just in this first part, how the asavas are abandoned by seeing by seeing both wise or appropriate attention and unwise or inappropriate attention. There's a whole um, kind of way of describing how both the asavas and the hindrances are fed by inappropriate or unwise attention. That's really quite specific. So attending in the wrong way causes these very subtle tendencies, these habits of our mind, to strengthen, right? And we're not talking about on the level of you strengthen anger by going around screaming in the woods and hitting trees, and that's one level that's relatively obvious. We're talking on much more subtle levels here, but these levels are very accessible to us when we're in a a long, Um, silent retreat like this, just paying attention. You start to notice it without judging. So it's said that what causes the first of these asavas, sense desire or desire for sensuality to arise and increase, is by unwise attention to gratification in sense pleasure. You said not just Sense pleasure is one thing, but the gratification in the sense for this really tastes good. For who, you know? Me. This is so beautiful. And behind it is it really makes me feel good. Unwise attention to the gratification in sense pleasure causes the asava a sense desire to arise and increase. Unwise attention to gratification in 
exalted states, means high states. What it means is meditative states. Unwise attention to the gratification in these higher meditative states is what causes the asava of becoming, of being, becoming something to arise and strengthen. Hmm? And you think, I can't even have, you know, I work all this time and I can't even have a high meditative state. It didn't say the state. Unwise attention to the gratification, the clinging, the meanness in it. See, this is really quite profound because we can see this. And the third, which is much broader because it's what causes ignorance to arise and increase, unwise attention (laughs) to (laughs) any mundane thing in the wrong way. What is that? (laughs) Any mundane thing. Mundane means every day. It means everything, basically. Unwise attention to any mundane thing in the wrong way. But the wrong way is, of course, very specific. Causes ignorance to arise and increase. The wrong way is what the Buddha calls perversions, or turning upside down of perceptions, which we're doing constantly. The four perversions or uh, turning upside down of perceptions are when we perceive the impermanent as permanent, which I don't know about you, but that's happening constantly over here. When we perceive the painful as pleasurable. When we perceive what is not self as self. And when we perceive what is unbeautiful as beautiful. The first three of these are the three characteristics, right? We perceive the impermanent as permanent, not seeing anicca, not seeing impermanence. We perceive painful as pleasurable, it's not really understanding dukkha. Perceiving not self as self, not getting anatta. The fourth one, what is unbeautiful is beautiful, isn't uh, a characteristic that covers all experience. It tends to be more relative to the body. The thing about when we're perceiving our body as this really beautiful thing, you know, this bag of skin over the bones and the blood and the guts and the pus. We don't see all of that, you know. I think, wow, isn't this beautiful? So... But I think it's really interesting. Unwise attention is the proximate or immediate cause for ignorance to arise in a moment. So knowing this is so vital, so helpful. By knowing it, I mean just noticing in a moment, you know, how we're attending inaccurately. And these upside-down perceptions, these perversions of perceptions, for example, seeing the impermanent as permanent, that then leads to a perversion of citta, of thought, of mind, right? Because then that's how we think about that object or ourselves. And then that leads to perversion of view. That becomes our view. You know, this is me or this is permanent. That leads to our actions in the world. So it's really starting on this most subtle level of perceiving inaccurately and not recognizing it is considered ayoniso manasikara, unwise, inappropriate attention. And just by noticing how this is happening, 
it can change right back to wise attention. It's not like we're hapless victims. We're stuck with this and there's nothing we can do about it. Let me go to the five hindrances because the Buddha speaks about them in the same way of seeing how we pay attention in an unwise or inappropriate way in the moment feeds these hindrances in our mind stream. When we see that, when we pay attention to the appropriate thing in the appropriate way, the hindrances decrease, or if they haven't arisen, they don't arise. And I think this is very useful, not just in the beginning of a retreat. You know, we, we always talk about hindrances in the beginning of a retreat. And those of you who just came and we've been going on and on thought, good, now I don't have to hear about the hindrances because the retreat already began. But, you know, it's not true that the hindrances just come in the beginning of a retreat. Is that so? Those of you who've been here three months, am I lying? <laughs> what is often true is that they they come in with a knockout blow in the beginning of a retreat, and it's not just subtle sloth and torpor. We can't lift our head off the pillow for three days. It's in the gross form. But they do arise from moment to moment, the five hindrances later in retreat. even, And this is when it can surprise us and when this learning how to work with wise attention can be really both fascinating. You can see I get fascinated with all this stuff. But really liberating. Instead of just going, oh my God, my practice was going so good and now ill will and craving is coming and all I can do is wait it out. Doesn't it feel like that? I try to know it. It doesn't happen. I just have to wait it out. One foot in front of the other until it finally goes away and I can keep practicing. Instead of seeing, oh, we can really learn what's feeding the arising of this hindrance in this moment, or should it have happened, you missed that particular subtle moment of its arising, what's feeding its continuing? What can, what can take away the food? What starves the hindrance in the other way the Buddha talks about it? It doesn't mean you starve it for one second and it's gone forever but it begins to lose its strength, and it gets less. This, again, is Tanjeff's translation, but this is the Buddha. O oh, bhikkhus, I will teach you the feeding and the starving of the five hindrances. And he does the same for the seven factors of awakening, but we're not going to make it there tonight. So feeding the hindrances. What is the food for the arising of unarisen sensual desire and for the growth and increase of sense desire once it's already here. What feeds that in the moment? And it's the theme of beauty, to give inappropriate attention to the sign of the beautiful, to the beautiful in something, as well as the gratification in it. This fosters the growth and increase of sense desire. It doesn't mean we don't see anything beautiful, but just notice someone said, oh, so beautiful here. It's so beautiful. It's hard to practice. What's happening in that moment? Notice that when you walk out, say, oh, that's beautiful. There's a way of appreciating beauty that's just pure presence, that's inspiring and it's onward leading. There's a way of, this is so beautiful. I want more. I want more, right? It's fostering. It's increasing 
the habit of wanting, of craving. And we can watch that. We can watch it in a moment. What's the food for the arising of unarisen ill will or the growth and increase of it? There is the theme of irritation to foster inappropriate attention to it. See, he's not saying irritation should or will never arise until you're the past third stage. But the inappropriate attention to it. As I remember Sayadaw Pandita saying once, it's like a cow chewing its cud. You know, it calls it up from the stomach where it's storing it and chews it over. Even the word we use in English is similar to a word in English. It ruminates, right? And that's what we do. There's some irritation, whether it's something from the so-called past or something that happens right now. It happens, it's gone. Maybe there's unpleasant irritation, it's gone. But then we call it up. We ruminate. I can't believe that that person did that. I just can't believe that would happen in a place like this. Or I can't believe I did that. You know, or I can't believe they think the windows shouldn't be open. I can't believe, you know, whatever it is. We just chew it over and over like a cow chewing its cud. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's unwise attention. But sometimes we don't think to look in that way, that that's fostering, you know. That's fostering not just ill will in the moment, but the underlying habit for ill will to arise. And this is really what we're learning to starve, this habit. What's the food for the arising of unarisen sloth and drowsiness and the continuance of it? (laughs) These are, there is boredom, weariness, yawning, drowsiness after a meal, and sluggishness of awareness to give inappropriate attention to these things, right? So to really focus, to really let your attention get sucked down into the drowsiness. The food for the arising of unarisen restlessness and anxiety or remorse. And he just says here, there is non-stillness of awareness to foster inappropriate attention to that. But I have another example from another sutta that I really like that is much more of a specific example of how we give inappropriate attention to an experience that leads into this restlessness and worry of mind. And he says, you know, an ordinary person who regards body as the self or the self as being in the body, any of those views, when change occurs to this person's body, it becomes different. So you're sitting, you're paying attention, some change occurs to your body. Maybe a subtle change, maybe gross. You look in the mirror after a month, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe how I look. Whatever it is. Because of this change and alteration in the body, the bhikkhu's consciousness becomes preoccupied with bodily change. Due to this preoccupation with bodily change, worried thoughts arise and persist laying a firm hold on his mind. Oh, that tingle in my knee wasn't there yesterday. Hmm, that tingle, that twitch, it's a little stronger today. 
mm, at the end of this sitting, this tingle is actually stronger and it's spread a little more. When you get up and walk, is it there? Is it not there? What makes it come? What makes it not come? Is it something I should do about it? Can I leave it alone? Do I have to sit differently? Do I need to see a surgeon? Right? On and on. Lays a firm hold on his mind. Through this mental obsession, he becomes fearful and distressed. And being full of desire and attachment, he becomes worried. Can you relate to any of this? Unwise attention to various thoughts, to not stillness of mind, based, of course, on the perversion of perception regarding body as self and not expecting it to change. So that's an example of unwise attention. And of course, doubt, uncertainty, that we talked about the other night. Remember, it's in the first sutta where he says, there are, he says it differently here, there are different phenomena that act as a foothold for uncertainty, to give inappropriate attention to them. But remember the example I read last week where he gives an example of things that are not fit for attention that lead to doubt? which are thoughts like, what was I in past time? Or was I in past time? Or was I not? Did I exist before? Having been, what was I in past and what am I going to be in the future? Or won't I be in the future? Or what am I now? Having been such in the past, how will it come in the future? And you could see this in terms of past lives and future lives. You could see it in terms of your last sitting and your next sitting. You could see it in terms of how good my concentration was yesterday and how good is it going to be tomorrow, you know, if I keep going like this. All those kind of things. You can think of, well, last retreat, I practiced in this way, and that happened. What would happen in this retreat if I practiced in this way? But now I'm practicing in that way, and this is happening, but maybe this isn't as good as how it was when I practiced that way in the last retreat, right? This is unwise attention to various phenomena that foster uncertainty, right? It's not that these thoughts arise. Sure they arise. But giving unwise attention to them is giving them all the power and getting really lost in them. And of course, what starves the hindrances is just the opposite of these things. The first, of course, is always simple mindfulness rather than being lost in how beautiful this is and the gratification and can I have more, just knowing beautiful, pleasant, that's enough. For all the hindrances, you know that. But there are also when you also know that at times that just doesn't cut it. You know, it's gone too far down the road. And at that time, to be, he gives specific things that starve the hindrances. And I'll just mention it very briefly. Lack of food for sense desire is the theme of unattractiveness. So in other words, when we're really caught up, say, let's take a VR, right, of a Vipassana romance, and the person is, we all know Vipassana romance, whatever it is, the mind invests that person with everything beautiful, with everything wonderful. So just to be really classical Theravada about it, Try imagining that person, the 32 parts of their body. Just imagine their organs, their liver, their intestines. Imagine the blood, the lymph. I mean, you don't have to go too far down the road to, it's not that you hate them, but the desire (laughs) 
it really kind of falls away, you know? It just doesn't really hold any juice. You don't have to even be that classical, but just to look at the basic unattractiveness of the suffering nature of the desire itself. Just don't feed that sense of gratification in the beauty, in the pleasantness. That's all. It's the same with ill will, although, of course, there's also the positive turning the mind towards metta, which, when we're really lost in ill will, turning the mind towards metta can really function as, a, as an antidote to that. With sloth and torpor, drowsiness, yawning, he says, by arousing energy, by giving appropriate attention to energy, I've also found that simply by withdrawing the unwise attention to the tiredness, the fogginess, the sloth and torpor, that actually makes a difference. It stops feeding it. An example, again, we're talking somewhat subtle. We're not talking when you're so exhausted you can't get out of the bed. Or you're sitting in here and your head's hitting the floor and you, you, know, you open your jaw, sloth and torpor, whop, you know. Then you need a little grosser intervention. But when you're more quiet in the mind and you can sometimes either just feel it coming in like a wave or you can notice that things are getting really fuzzy or there's just that sense of, it's too hard. That's actually sloth and torpor. You know, it's just too hard to be with this right now. I think I need a tea. That's actually, in that tone of voice, and it comes in my mind, that's not like compassionate, skillful means. That's giving unwise, inappropriate attention to the torpor, to the sluggishness. It's kind of letting that mind state be the veil through which the show's being run. And I found, and believe me, I have inordinate experience with this particular hindrance. It's my old friend in and out of retreat. 